Again, glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'm just going to jump right in. It's not a, it's a thematic connection to chapter 3, but nothing necessarily chronological. So we'll just jump in and kind of tie it in as we go. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. That's a big verse for us. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. So Jesus has been baptizing near where John the Baptist has been baptizing. Jesus' crowds are growing larger. John the Baptist's or John the Baptist's crowds growing smaller. It says John the Baptist is good with it. He says it's how it should be. He's got to increase. His ministry needs to grow. I've got to decrease. My ministry needs to diminish because I'm the one that prepares the way, and he's the star of the show. So the Pharisees, religious leaders, hear that Jesus' popularity is growing, and so he leaves. I don't think he's scared of them. I think he just, at this point, doesn't want a confrontation. And so he leaves, and this is where he goes. So he, he goes through Samaria. He's down there at the bottom of the map, and he cuts through Samaria all the way to the top of the map. And that's significant because we read that he had to go through Samaria. So you can see that as a geographical Necessity Is it because of his travel that he had to go through Samaria? It was the shortest route from where he was to where he wanted to go. It took about three days to walk. But there were other routes. Those two dotted lines, that was how Jews normally traveled from north to south and from south to north. Normally, a Jew would avoid Samaria because there was a lot of hostility between Jews and Samaritans. And it had been going on for centuries and Jews kind of looked down their nose at Samaritans, saw them as half-breeds, they're part Jew, part Gentiles. Uh, Samaritans had their own Bible, it was called the Samaritan Pentateuch. They just held to the first five books of the Bible as authoritative, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And their translation was a little bit different than the Hebrew translation, so you've got some of that religious tension as well. They actually had their own place where they worshipped. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. They had a temple on a, a, a mountain called Mount Gerizim. But the Jews had actually destroyed it about 200 years before Jesus' time. So you have all of that tension. It's religious and it's ethnic tension. And so oftentimes a Jew would avoid Samaria. To go through would mean risk becoming unclean because Samaritans were unclean. And then a Jewish person would have to jump through some hoops to become ritually pure again. So a lot of times they would avoid it. Not all the time, but a lot of times they would avoid it. But Jesus had to go through. Samaria, And so he's cutting through, again, this three-day journey, and he stops there at that green star, this town, Sychar, and he stops at a well that was outside the town, maybe a half mile, maybe a mile outside the town, and it's noon, which is the heat of the day, and Jesus is both thirsty and he's tired. And remember, Jesus is not just fully God, he's also fully human, and so he has the same physical limitations we do. So it's not pretend Jesus really is hot then Jesus really is tired. And so he stops at this well about halfway through his journey. Then a Samaritan woman came to draw water at this well, and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food, so Jesus is by himself 
And the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So it's unusual for a woman to come to a well at noon. Uh, it was hottest part of the day, and so normally a woman would draw water either in the morning or the evening. It was a bit cooler. And often it was a social activity. It was a chore for sure. It was a task that had to be done every day. But oftentimes the women would do that in groups. A well was kind of a... Uh, a social gathering spot. So it's unusual for a woman to come at noon and to be by herself. And she sees Jesus and he engages with her. And he says, will you give me something to drink? And very unusual. Jesus is crossing some boundaries there. Jewish men did not talk to women in public. Oftentimes not even their own family, not their wives, much less a stranger. We just talked about Jews and Samaritans don't really connect. So you've got crossing a, a gender boundary and you're crossing a religious boundary and you're crossing... A racial boundary. Jesus is doing all of those things just by asking her for a drink of water. And she's aware of that. How can you ask me for something to drink? So impurity is contagious. So if I'm considered unclean, then anything I touch is unclean. And then anyone who touches what I touch becomes unclean. So if I'm unclean and I touch this glass of juice, now this is unclean. And so when you come forward and take communion... If you drink, drink from this cup, then you become unclean as well. Impurity is contagious. And so this woman is saying, how can you ask me for something to drink? You're going to drink from my pitcher, then you're going to become impure. You Jews don't do that. So she's a bit confused, and, and Jesus takes it from there. He says, Jesus answered her. She says, how can you ask me for a drink? And he says, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? So Jesus says, you know, you're asking me how you can give me water. You should probably reverse that. If you knew who I was and you knew what I had to offer, you'd be asking me for water, and I would give you this, this living water. And it gets confusing here. The, the, the woman is not hearing what Jesus is saying. He says living water, and what she hears is a spring. That, that phrase would be used to describe a, a spring, moving water, versus water that just sits like in a cistern. And so she hears a spring of water, and she's thinking physical water. And she's going, okay, well, how are you going to access this water? Jacob's well still is existent today it's like 100 feet deep it may not have been quite that deep during this woman's time maybe it was 75 feet deep at that point she's going how, how are you going to access any of this water you don't have anything so she'd have her she'd have a rope and she'd have her pitcher and she'd have some kind of a bucket either a clay jar or some kind of a leather bucket that she would drop into the well and then pull up and fill up her pitcher and do that until her pitcher was full and then she'd take her water home and she's looking at jesus and going you don't have any of that equipment and we've already established that I'm a Samaritan, so all my equipment is impure. And so if you touch my equipment, then you're going to become impure too. If you drink water that's touched my equipment, you're going to become impure. So how exactly are you going to access this living water that you're talking about? This well is really deep. She's not understanding what, what Jesus is saying. And then she's even going beyond that because Jacob's well is not living water. It's not fed by a spring. And she's going... Our, this is what Jacob, our ancestor, gave us. Remember, there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's a patriarch. He's, 
kind of one of the big three in Genesis, and she's attaching this well to him and going, that, that's what he has given to us. Are you going to give us something better than he did? I mean, he's, he's somebody. Are you going to actually give us something better than him? And by implication, does that mean you're, you're saying you're, you're actually better than Jacob? And you can do for us what he didn't, or you can do for us more or better than what he did for us. And Jesus' response is, everyone who drinks this water out of this well that we're standing next to, they're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give, I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So again, Jesus is trying to redirect her. She's hearing drinking water, and Jesus is talking about spiritual water, and she's not making the connection. He says, listen, anyone who drinks from this well, you're going to get thirsty again. So let's kind of, what I want to give you, it's not about your physical thirst. It will be within you like a spring of water. You won't have to draw water anymore. It'll be like a spring of living water within you, and it will lead to eternal life, just like drinking water from this well um, leads to physical life. If you're not drinking water from this well, you're going to die of dehydration. I want to offer you water that will cause you to live forever. It will, and she says, give that to me. I want that. I have no idea what she thinks Jesus is going to give her. He's going to, I don't know what she's expecting him to hand her at that point, but she's expecting something tangible, it seems like, and something physical, but she, she wants. And I don't know if she's desperate or she's just really intrigued, but she's, she's in. He's hooked her, and she wants this water. And she says, I don't want to have to come here anymore. Drawing water is probably hard work. You know, it's a half a mile or a mile outside of town, so you can imagine doing that again. She's doing that in the heat of the day. She lives on the edge of a desert, so it's really hot, and she's coming out there, and again, you have to do this work every day. You don't get to take a day off from drawing water, and so she brings her gear with her, and however many drops of that pitcher or that bucket into the well she has to make in order to fill up her pitcher, and who, what does she go back with? Four gallons, five gallons, six gallons? Probably depends on how big her, her, her household is and water weighs. Eight pounds a gallon, so you're lugging something on the way back. Forty pounds-ish that you're taking back, and that's on your head or on your shoulder. And if your family goes through that amount of water, you've got to go back and do it again. And you definitely have to do it on Tuesday and then again on Wednesday and Thursday. And Friday. And that's it. That's a big part of her life is schlepping water every day. And she's going, I don't have to do that anymore. And maybe it's because it's hard work and she's tired of doing the hard work. I actually wonder if there's something else going on. And she's saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Not just, I don't want to do this work anymore. I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to come out here by myself at noon anymore. And I think that because of what Jesus says to her. Go call your husband and come back. If you want this water, go get him. I have no husband, she replied. And he says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. So she says, I want this water, and she's still thinking physical water. And now Jesus says, well, go get your husband. And why does he say that? It's, it's inappropriate, we'll say, for this, a man and a woman to be talking. And so maybe he's saying, bring your husband. This is a significant conversation, and he needs to be a part of it. It, it, it could be um, you know, Jesus is offering her spiritual life, and he says, bring your husband. I want him to... Be a part of this too. I want him to hear the invitation. 
could totally those things could be it. I actually think Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the issue with this woman. And I think it's why she's coming to draw water at noon by herself instead of going early in the morning or later in the evening with the rest of the women from her village. And so he says, call your husband. And she says, I don't have one, which is technically true, but it's not the truth. And he says, you're right. You don't have one. You've actually had five. And now you're living with a guy and he's not your husband. And that cuts to the core of the issue. We're actually going to stop there. We'll pick it up next week and see how she responds. Terrible place to stop, but you got to stop somewhere. So what's happening in this interaction? Why go call your husband and then her response? And then Jesus, I think from the Lord, he hasn't been spying on her. The God has spoken to him and he's got some insight about her life. And I think... Some people maybe see her as tragic. Maybe she was widowed five times and now she's living with a male relative. That's not how I see her. I don't know how she went through five husbands, if it's some combination of death or divorce, but she definitely, the guy she's sleeping with now is she's not married to and that's sinful. And I would tend to see her in that light. And I would say the reason she's coming by herself in the middle of the day to get water is because... She's been cut off from her community. Either she's isolated herself or she's been ostracized by the other women in the community. And so it's easier for her just to go at noon by herself than try to deal with the things that she would be dealing with if she went with the other ladies in her village. And so when she seems, I think, somewhat desperate to say, give me this water so I don't have to draw from this well again, I don't think it's just about the physical labor of drawing water from the well. I think it's saying, I don't have to deal with these people anymore. I don't have to deal with every day being reminded of the fact that I'm cut off from community, either because I've isolated myself because I'm ashamed or they've ostracized me because they see me as, you know, someone who's loose or going to steal their man or whatever that is. And I don't have to deal with that anymore. And so if there's a way that I can get water and not have to do that, I'm in. And we'll see next week how she responds to Jesus' statement about her personal life. I was thinking about this, and people see this passage as an evangelistic template. And totally, you can see that's not helpful to me. Because I don't see myself as an evangelist at all. I'm terrible at it. And so I can just move past John chapter 4. If that's who it's for. If it's for the evangelist, well, that's not for me. I prefer to see it as a missionary passage. Jesus is functioning as a missionary. And anyone who's following Jesus is a missionary as well. To be a missionary is to be a sent one. Jesus sends all of us. That's how he closes all four Gospels. It's the sending of his disciples. And so if you're a follower, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you're sent. You're a missionary. It doesn't matter whether you think that or not. It's true. It's who you are. You've either been sent somewhere. If you like it better, you've been placed somewhere. And we see some things here in this John chapter 4 about living missionally or, or, or viewing life as a missionary. And so I want you to put those glasses on. For a minute, this, we have cross-cultural ministry here. Jesus is in a foreign country, Samaria, and he's engaging with someone who doesn't know him and doesn't know the gospel. We have a group who just left to go to Honduras and a group that just left to go to Guatemala. And one of the reasons we do that is because of John chapter 4. Jesus is our example. He did cross-cultural work, and so we do cross-cultural work as well. I think that the point for me that I want to hone in on is this idea that Jesus had to go to Samaria. I think he was led there by the Father. I think God spoke to him and said, 
you're going to go through Samaria. You got options for how to get from the south to the north. And the option I want you to take is right through the middle. I want you to go through Samaria. And he stops at this well. And I don't necessarily think God said stop at this well. I think he was tired. I think he was thirsty and it was a well. And so there's an opportunity for water. And he stopped. And then this woman comes and he chooses to engage her. It's interesting. As far as we know, Jesus never got a drink of water. That's the reason he stopped. He never got one. So in that moment, this lady comes and he's willing to kind of put aside how he feels. And he's able to engage with her spiritually. He, he recognizes there's an opportunity here. And so he begins to talk with her. And again, he goes straight to the heart of the matter twice. The first time when he says, I, I'm offering you living water. And then the second time when he says, go get your husband. I think both of those was him choosing to kind of dive deep into her heart. And to attempt to connect with her on a heart level or on a spiritual level. And so as you think about yourself as a missionary, again, if you're following Jesus, then you are one. If you think about yourself as a sent one, there's something probably to be said there. The importance and the value to place on these spiritual conversations when there is an opportunity uh, to do so. The, the thing I see about Jesus to me in this that's so interesting, if you think about chapter 3 and you think about chapter 4... So there's, an, there's a, a one-on-one conversation with Nicodemus. There's a one-on-one conversation with a woman at the well. And in the middle of it, so you can kind of think of it like a sandwich, is John 3.16. That classic verse you'll see there up on the screen that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not die but should live forever. And God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent his son into the world to save the world through his Son And whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not stands condemned already because they haven't believed in Jesus. And so you've got one-on-one encounter, John three sixteen through 18, one-on-one encounter. And I think you can understand both of those one-on-one encounters through the lens of John three sixteen. Those are expressions of God so loving the world. God so loved Nicodemus. God so loved this woman at the well that he sent his son. And that, I think, speaks to us a bit as what it means to live missionally or to live as a missionary is to recognize where wherever God has sent me and wherever he's placed me those are people that he loves if you're a Jew and you hear for the first time God so loved Nicodemus what you think is of course he does Nicodemus is a great guy he's a man he's a Jew he's a Pharisee that means he's great at keeping the law of course God loves him he's someone who's trying to live righteously he's doing everything that he can to live acceptably before the Lord. He follows the rules. He's a good man. He's a moral man. He's an upright man. Of course God loves him. He actually recognizes Jesus as a rabbi and goes to him and says, for for spiritual input and spiritual advice, which would not be easy. Nicodemus is part of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the 70 leading religious scholars of his day. And for him to humble himself, to say, I'm going to go to a carpenter who's never been to school who's never been apprenticed to a rabbi. I'm going to go to him and ask him for spiritual input. That shows a decent level of humility. And so when we look at Nicodemus, we're like, of course God loves him. Who wouldn't? He's the kind of guy you want on your team. And then you look over here at John chapter 4, and you have this woman at the well, and she's at the other end of the spectrum. She's a Samaritan. She's a half-breed. She's unclean just by virtue of who she is, that her lineage is mixed. And she doesn't seem to be making any attempts to live righteously before the Lord. In fact, she's actively living in sin. She's sleeping with someone she's not married to. It was a sin then, it's a sin now. 
So she's actively rebelling against whatever it is she knows of God. Their version of the Pentateuch it included that, for sure. And she knows that. She's sinning against the Lord, and she's not making any effort. She doesn't have a clue who Jesus is, and yet Jesus is sent to Samaria, and they meet at this well, and he begins to pursue her. She doesn't pursue him, but he begins to pursue her. So we see two ends of the spectrum, the one who we would expect and the most unexpected, someone who's attempting to please God and live righteously and someone who's just doing their own thing and living rebelliously, someone who seeks Jesus and someone who doesn't even know who Jesus is but is sought by him. And I would say, where are you on that spectrum? And where are the people in your life on that spectrum? When you think about being a missionary and living as a sent one, who is your woman at the well? Who is the individual? I want you to think very concretely about your life. Who is the individual in your life right now who you would say, they're beyond reach? God so loved the world except him. You don't say that with your brain, you know that's wrong. But in your heart, when it comes to the way you interact, they're beyond, they're, they're beyond reach. Because of, it's most likely it's a woman at the well person and not a Nicodemus person who's beyond reach in your mind. They're too hard. They're too rebellious. They're too sinful. They're too resistant. What does it look like for you to say, you know what, God's so loved and you fill in that blank? Maybe it's a group. Who are the Samaritans in your life? Who's the group of people? who fall outside the scope of God's love. Again, in your brain, you know it's nobody. But in your heart, who is it? Who are the ones that, for whatever reason, we've decided they deserve hell? We all do, but for some reason, they do more. And we're okay with them not responding to Jesus. Who is that in you? And what would it look like if God sent you to them? I would encourage you to begin to think through the people in your life and the groups in your life through that lens of John 3.16 and use the story of Nicodemus and the woman at the well as kind of the, that's, if you want to think about God so loving the world, here's two stakes in the ground. One who's completely expected, a Jewish Pharisee, and one who's completely unexpected, a sinning Samaritan. And he loves them both and sent his son to both of them. And he does the same thing today. And his son comes to them oftentimes through us, through the body. Jesus tailors his message to each one. He personalizes it. The, he, he understands salvation is an invitation to relationship with God, and he doesn't do a one-size-fits-all thing. What he says to a Jewish man, a, a Pharisee, who would think by his birth he was acceptable to God, and because of his behavior he continues to be acceptable to God, he says, you've got to be born again. Your first birth is not enough. Your birth to your parents is not enough, Nicodemus. You've got to be born again, and it's a spiritual birth. And to a Pharisee who is obsessed with keeping the law, what he says is believe. Go back and read John 3. How often the word believe is used. You can't behave your way into right relationship with God. You believe your way into right relationship with God. If he, Jesus had said that to the Samaritan woman, it would have made no sense to her. The idea of being born again. And so what he says to her, a woman who maybe in her own mind is beyond the reach of God, maybe in her own mind, again, is, is living, has just decided, I'm going to live the way I want to live. What Jesus offers her is living water. 
as they're standing next to a well and drawing water as a part of her daily reality. I think every time she goes to that well, she's going to remember that conversation with Jesus. And what he says to her, he doesn't say believe, he says drink. It's a different way of saying the same thing. Drink, just receive. Just receive. Some people say, well, the reason we would say this woman is not immoral, that her story is just tragic, she was widowed five times, is because Jesus doesn't tell her to sin no more. And to me, I would say, I don't know that that actually speaks to that point. I think Jesus told her to sin no more. I think Jesus didn't tell her to sin no more. Because he's not dealing with her behavior. He's dealing with her heart. Let's deal with that first. If you can begin to draw on this spring of living water, then your behavior will follow. I was thinking particularly about this for this service. I wonder if that lady felt picked on. So women could not initiate divorce. So... If she's widowed and or divorced, think about how you would feel. Put yourself in her situation. She's probably still in her mid-30s at the latest, at the oldest. She could still be in her 20s. So that's younger than many of us. She's already had five spouses who have some combination died or divorced her. And now she's at a point, you need a man in your life if you're a woman in this culture. She's gotten to the point where she's willing just to live with somebody. Like, think what, what are you thinking about yourself if you've gone through five husbands? Are you feeling picked on by God at all? Do you feel like he's got his finger on you? Whether they died or whether they divorced you, they, can, they divorced you because there was something wrong with you. How are you feeling? And then you get to a point in a society where you need to be attached to a man for safety and for provision. You've gotten so desperate that you're just, you just move in with somebody. Do any of you this morning feel like God's got his thumb on you. You won't admit it because it, you would say, no, I know he's good and I know he loves me. How do you feel? If we could peel away some of the Sunday school, would you say, I can't catch a break? And what would it mean for you To know that the Father sent Jesus to Samaria. And that he still does that. He sends Jesus to you. If you feel that way this morning, I want to strongly encourage you, one, to acknowledge it. Don't put on the kind of the Christian face that says, somebody's got it worse than me. Certainly they do. Somebody always does. We don't, whoever the person with the worst life is, we hadn't met them. Somebody always has it worse than you. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you feel picked on or looked over by the Lord? Are you going, seriously, five husbands? Can I, none of them? And now I'm 
living with a guy just for the sake of security and some sense of provision? And is that where you are this morning? When I think about things from that woman's perspective, there's a verse in Jeremiah 2. In Jeremiah, God is speaking to his people and he's frustrated with them. I think he's angry with them and he's says, y'all, y'all have committed two sins. You've One, you've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and two, you're building cisterns. And they don't even work. A cistern was like a man-made holding tank to collect water. Israel was in a desert area, and so you would collect rainwater, and that's kind of how you would, that's what you would have in between rain during the dry season. But the water in it was stagnant. It wasn't fresh, and... You see this contrast between a spring that's, we'll say, self-producing and this water is fresh and it's flowing and a cistern that has water in it, but the water's stale and it's stagnant. And God says, you're, you're prone to forsaking me, turning your back on me. And some of us do that and we don't do it intentionally. It's apathy that causes us to turn our back on God or it's busyness that causes us to turn our back on God and we, we, we're just looking at other things and then we're all tempted because we have needs that are legitimate. If they're not being met in God, then we create other ways of having those needs met. Security, that's what this woman did. I just got to find a guy. It's not what God intends for her. He's just, she's like, I just got to find a guy. And we're all tempted to do that, whether it's identity or acceptance or love or security, whatever those deep needs are that we all have, and those needs have to be met. If they're not met in the Lord, then we begin to build our own cisterns. And what Jesus would say is they don't even work. They don't work. You're not just settling for water that's stagnant. This thing that you're building won't even hold the water. And so if this morning, if you would say, I kind of feel put upon Again, or looked over. It's two different ways of two perspectives on the same reality. Put upon by the Lord or looked over by God. Honestly, I feel a bit forsaken. I would encourage you this morning to Isaiah 55. Hear that invitation from him. Come, if you're thirsty, and drink. What he said to the Samaritan woman, he didn't say clean your life up. He didn't say do better. He didn't say try harder. What he said is just drink. Just drink. We're going to close with communion. The way we take communion here, you'll come forward a row at a time. Kim will signal you and you'll break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. And we'll have gluten-free communion here on the edges of this table. You can take that if that's what you prefer. But I want to strongly encourage you. We'll also have ministry teams here in the corners. Let us pray with you this morning. If you're thirsty, let us pray for God to satisfy your thirst. Stop building cisterns that don't actually hold water, and the water they hold, it's, far, it, it, it's, it's inferior to what the Lord wants to give you. If you're not thirsty, let us pray that God would make you thirsty. That's just a metaphor for recognizing our need for Jesus. And if you don't recognize your need, you're actually in pretty bad shape. If you're not feeling thirsty, if you're feeling numb in some ways, let us pray for God to stir desire and thirst and to remind you of your need for Him so that He can then meet that need in you. And again, I would say particularly, and I feel this for this service especially, if you're feeling like I've had five husbands and the one I'm with now is not, I've been past, God's got his thumb on me or he's forgotten about me. Please let us pray with you about that reality. And, And can you...
this morning recognize he sent Jesus to Samaria and he's sending him to you this morning. Let's take a minute and pray. Bo, we can come on back. If you're helping with communion or ministry, you can come forward. One of the things we always love to pray for during communion is physical healing. Psalm 103 says, don't forget the benefits of the Lord. He forgives us of all of our sins and communion reminds us of that. And he also heals us of all of our diseases. And so if you're sick, please let us pray for God to heal you. If you're thirsty, please let us pray for God to satisfy your thirst. If you're not thirsty, please let us pray for God to stir your thirst. And if you feel put upon, let's pray that you would receive whatever it is that Jesus has for you, that you would be able to sense his deep and profound love for you, even in the midst of circumstances that would lead you to believe he's forgotten you or even that he's actively tormenting you. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you minister to us I do pray for those who feel put upon and that they would, in this moment as they come forward and take communion, they would recognize that you didn't withhold your own son from them, so you're not going to withhold any good thing. That you would break into their minds and their hearts and their lives in powerful and kind and loving and gracious ways. That they would, before they leave here this morning, have a deep sense of your love for them and your delight in them. God, I pray for all of us that we will begin to view our lives in light of John 3.16, both that you so loved us and that you so loved the men and women in our life, the Nicodemuses and the women at the well, and that you would anoint us to share with them, to offer the good news to them in ways that make sense to them and to where they are spiritually. So would you come now and Minister to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.